Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They say the quiet part out loud. Who says this to Jesus? Apparently, his closest followers. It is a terribly cringeworthy statement, an indictment upon Jesus' followers. Who are these guys? the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Well, a few moments with your Bible will remind you that James and John were fishermen who worked with their father, Zebedee. We can imagine that that was hard work. Probably wasn't a whole lot of power, prestige with that. In fact, Those of us who are watching the series The Chosen gives us an idea of what this lifestyle must have been like. It must have felt desperate. We know, of course, that these men were on the outskirts of um, that which was considered acceptable. Most of us would consider where they were from to be the boondocks. They were angry underneath the thumb of Roman oppression, had been for many years many years, but they were God's chosen people. But is this how God's chosen people were to be to be um, treated? They hoped not, which is why they were on the lookout for the Messiah, the one made in the image of King David who would throw off the Roman oppressors, liberate them, and put God's people front and center. So yeah, we're talking about those two. But they also are two-thirds of that famous triumvirate that Jesus continually refers to throughout the Gospels. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. We get sick of saying it just as the other ten did. Why? Because Jesus singled out Peter, James, and John as his inner circle. These were the ones that Jesus gave extra time and attention to go up on the mountain with to hear God's voice, to to receive revelations and instruction that only they could best receive. Jesus was grooming Peter, James, and John to be his successors. Had they not learned anything in their time with Jesus? I mean, it makes you wonder how they got into this and why they got into this in the first place. Was it really because of power and ambition and what this association with Jesus might yield for them? Maybe. But also, they were certainly slow learners just before this. Mark tells us that Jesus holds up children as the ideal in the kingdom of God. Their lowliness, their trusting nature, their lack of ambition, that was the goal in Christ's kingdom. Y'all, the moment here is so bad 
that in Matthew's version of this, James and John don't even ask this question. He puts it in the words, in the mouth of their mother. Matthew throws James and John's mother under the bus. That's how bad this is. We don't want to make James and John look so bad. So let's make sure this gets in the words of the mom. Because we can imagine that, right? We want the best for our sons and our daughters. So we're going to go and see the teacher after class. Y'all, Luke thinks this is so detestable. He doesn't even include this question or moment in his retelling of it. But I... I like that Mark includes it. You know why? I think it's the most honest part of the gospel. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's a fascinating question, and it shows up in all kinds of interesting locations. This past week was Christopher Columbus Day. So it gave me an opportunity, of course, to brush up on Columbus and his influence, his legacy. So I came across the journal that he kept. He kept really good notes. He was very reflective and very thoughtful. This is but one passage from his journal. He says, the Indians are so naive and so free with their possessions that no one who has not witnessed them would believe it. When you ask for something they have, they never say no. To the contrary, they offer to share with anyone. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we ask. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They're calling it right now the cult of individualism and the death of the common good. That is an era that arguably is on steroids. This idea that what's best is what's best for you. And the lie that what's best for you is really what's best for everyone. (laughs) How dare you ask me to give up my personal rights for anything? we mutter. It's remarkable how even the suggestion of asking people to sacrifice to do what's good for everyone else results in cries that their personal freedoms are at risk. (laughs) Truly, could anything be less Christ-like? People don't want to serve because it's not in their best interest. Our main motivation tends to be what we want. And who in the world would want to give that up? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And if you don't, well then don't check out what they write about you on TripAdvisor or Google. (laughs) Oh yes, we want others to serve us and to do whatever it is we ask of them. But maybe we've got it all wrong. Maybe Jesus is a genie 
that we come to church and we rub that beautiful pot and out pops Jesus asking us whatever we want. Or perhaps Jesus truly is Santa Claus inviting us up on Jesus' lap and asking what we want. Or maybe Jesus is our rich Uncle Joe that doles out whatever it is that we might ask of him. I must admit, it really is attractive, isn't it? James and John say to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. You know what they're asking for, right? They want military glory. This denotes a power grab. They want, when Jesus reveals that he has ultimate power and control in Israel, to throw off the Romans and to do those things that they wish and have been dreaming of him doing, the Messiah, for centuries, that they will be able and be afforded to sit right there with him as his generals. If you look closely, you find out that Jesus gives them a nickname. They're not just the sons of Zebedee, they are the sons of thunder. Isn't that great? I mean, truly, it sounds like the kind of nickname that you'd want if you played football at the local high school. Sons of Thunder. Why did Jesus give them this nickname? Well, there's a story in Luke 9 where Jesus and his fellows and his followers are treated poorly by the Samaritans. They are ready on their devices to write a bad review but James and John go one step further and they step up and they say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? <laughs> they want to wipe them out. Yes, sons of thunder. That's the right way to describe them. The brothers want to form an alliance with Jesus for their own good. So is this how this works, y'all? Does God work for us? Jesus' response is delicious. He says, you don't know what you're asking. No truer words have ever been spoken. You know, be on his left and right. Well, we soon find out that those who are on Jesus' left and right on the cross are thieves. Perhaps we should open all of our prayers with, God, we really don't know what we are asking. The way of Jesus stands in sharp contrast to the standards of our daily lives. He describes it to the followers. He says, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's that last part that I got a little tripped up on, so I looked it up. To give his life a ransom for many literally means that he was sent to set others free. Greatness means service to others. But we don't think so, do we? We don't equate greatness with service. If we do, we think, we'll come out looking like the natives that Columbus encountered and took advantage of. I'm reading a book right now. It's fiction. It's suspense. It's out on the, 
the high seas. And we meet um, a very strange cast and crew, these characters on this ship. But there is a demon aboard the ship and it whispers this into their ears. What do you yearn for? It asks. Your heart's desire for a price. I know it's not exactly original, is it? <laughs> we see that moment with Jesus and his encounter with the devil, with Satan. They're out in the wilderness, and one of those temptations is one for power and control. But Satan shows his hand. He lets it be known that the powers and principalities of this world, all that Jesus sees before him, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, they belong to him. And he says to Jesus, all this that you see, I'll give it to you. Just bow down and worship me. Hmm. Jesus says no to that temptation. And throughout his teachings, throughout his discipleship, throughout all that he does, he teaches us that service does not mean serve us. Do you want to check up on the condition of your heart? I find this convicting. Gordon McDonald once said, you can tell whether you are becoming a servant by how you act when people treat you like one. Hmm. If James and and John look bad in this story. Well, the rest of the disciples quickly jump in the same boat. I mean, talk about fear of missing out. They're mad when they learn about this encounter. Why? Because they got to Jesus first. James and John are not outliers here. They are not the fringe that are in it just for the, the power and the influence. No, I'm afraid that James and John have lots of company with the rest of us, don't they? I find this to be a particularly damning story. And yet, this story may actually be a story of hope for those of us who look a whole lot more like the sons of thunder than we do like Jesus. Interestingly, Jesus, when he has this encounter, does not rebuke them. It almost seems like he's playing along with them. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Oh, really? He asks, responds. What do you, what do you want? He doesn't rebuke them. Heck, didn't they deserve to be fired? To be removed? You two, out of here right now. None of this. Our relationship, it's terminated. I mean, that's, that's the right thing to do, right? In organizational leadership, when you find your leaders have got it completely wrong, you ask them to leave. But Jesus doesn't. I call that hope. Instead, Jesus seems to, to treat this moment, as I think Mark does also, as a teachable moment, truly as a rabbi or teacher Jesus keeps them around. And y'all, that is the message of the gospel. Jesus keeps us around, even when we don't deserve it, especially when we don't deserve it. Instead of letting them have it, as Jesus most certainly should, 
Jesus asked his disciples to simply be like him. If Jesus is a servant, then how much more so should his followers? And here's the big whammy. The brothers and the disciples continue to follow Jesus. They don't give up on Jesus. That, I think, is what's most remarkable here. They have this moment. Jesus puts a mirror up in front of them. They see who they really are. There's a corrective, and they don't give up on him. How absolutely different is that than our current reality of being followers of Jesus? We have any kind of friction, any kind of moment of conviction or arrangement, and we're gone, right? Not these disciples. They actually don't give up on Jesus. Maybe this is why he doesn't condemn them. And let's be clear, Jesus does some condemning. You should look at his relationship with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the ones who think they have it all figured out. There's a whole series of woes you've probably never heard me address from the pulpit because they're so damning for us to hear because they hit so close to home. Who's going to show up for that sermon series? Woe number four of seven. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus could have easily condemned them just as we know he could condemn us, and yet he doesn't. As it turns out, it seems like discipleship and resiliency, a teachable attitude, they may be what's required to escape what's really deserved here. The best part of all is that because of this moment, because of Jesus' willingness to not give up on them and to see them through this, to teach them and to love them through this, and because they were willing to stay with Jesus, they are transformed. James and John, they are the heroes of the faith. They're known as the Parabolani. And it comes from the Greek word for risking one's life. And they had their origins in the third century in North Africa, Carthage. And why? Because a terrible plague beset the city. And as was the case throughout all of human history and plagues and illnesses, People didn't know why they were experiencing what they had or what to do to protect themselves or one another. It was a time of great terror and fear. And it laid the city exceptionally low. People were sick. They were desperate. They were dying. No one was caring for the dead. It was spiraling out of control until the bishop of Carthage gathered the church together and said, our place is out there. Our job, our calling is to be with those who are sick and hurting, serving them. Give up the comfort, give up the safety, go and be with the people. Serve them in this extraordinary moment of need. This moment was so inspiring 
The, the Parabolani existed for centuries later. They were the ones they believed that were the most Christ-like, that the purpose of the church was to be with others in their time of extraordinary need when no one else would want to do so. Brothers and sisters, I'm convicted by this witness and by this passage because I did not ask this of you. And I ask God's forgiveness for not asking more of us during a time of terror. But I'm comforted humbled and inspired by the ways in which you didn't need your pastor to tell you this to to do it because you have been you have you have served you have provided you have been Christ-like in any number of ways that have made a difference in the life of your family members your children your grandchildren by becoming vaccinated and wearing masks, even through harassment, to, to care for, for the person that's checking you out at Walmart and to enable you to continue to show up and teach or to care for your grandchildren or to be here and to serve children. You all have done this. I've seen this same generosity of Paravalani here in our church, not only recently, but throughout this church's history. Just this past week, a church member tiptoed on JFK's beautiful statement and said, you know, I should think about what I can do for the church, not what the church can do for me. And this person's actions and sacrifice live that out. To identify the particular moments of service that you all have engaged in actually could populate any number of sermons for any number of length of time. We are a different church than we once were. And in many respects, we're all the better for it. For those of us who choose to continue to be church are serving and doing so in extraordinary ways. Oh, it's true. We can argue about who should be doing what around here and in the kingdom. But the truth of the matter is we're asking the wrong question and having the wrong conversation when we should simply be doing that which we see needs doing and that we feel called to do. I oftentimes wonder what it would look and feel like if the directive that James and John ask of Jesus were turned around on us and God asked us the question, I want you to do whatever I ask of you. Wait. He already has. Let us pray. God, it's true we know that you've been very clear what you wish and expect of us, so much so that out of love for us, you came and lived this out in our midst. 
Thank you, God, for the gift of Christ Jesus and for humbling and convicting us by showing us what it looks like to serve, to place, to place oneself second and behind and last as servant and slave of all. God, we ask, we beg that you do not give up on us. We are very much like the sons of thunder. And we pray, God, that you might not abandon us. Instead, God, we ask that you might forgive us, that you might continue to walk alongside us, and that by doing so, we might be changed. For we know that, that's, that, that you have a phenomenal track record of changing those that walk with you. So come, Holy Spirit, come. Change us, move in us. Help us to have eyes to see the need and the willingness and desire to meet it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.